Section five of the Golden Fleece and the Heroes Who Lived Before Achilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Golden Fleece and the Heroes Who Lived Before Achilles by Parak Colum. Part one. Chapter five. The Argo. The heroes went the next day through the streets of Iolcus down to where the ship lay. The ways they went through were crowded, the heroes were splendid in their appearance, and Jason amongst them shone like a star. The people praised him, and one told the other that it would not be long until they would win back to Iolcus, for this band of heroes was strong enough, they said, to take King Aeetes' city and force him to give up to them for the famous fleece of gold. Many of the bright-eyed youths of Iolcus went with the heroes who had come from the different parts of Greece. As they marched past a temple, a priestess came forth to speak to Jason. Iphias was her name. She had a prophecy to utter about the voyage. But Iphias was very old, and she stammered in her speech to Jason. What she said was not heard by him. The heroes went on, and ancient Iphias was left standing there as the old are left by the young. The heroes went aboard the Argo. They took their seats as at an assembly. Then Jason faced them and spoke to them all. "'Heroes of the quest,' said Jason, "'we have come aboard the great ship that Argus has built, and all that a ship needs is in its place, or is ready to our hands. All that we wait for now is the coming of the morning's breeze that will set us on our way for far Colchis. One thing we have first to do—that is, to choose a leader who will direct us all, one who will settle disputes amongst ourselves, and who will make treaties between us and the strangers that we come amongst. We must choose such a leader now." Jason spoke, and some looked to him, and some looked to Heracles. But Heracles stood up, and stretching out his hand, said, "'Argonauts, let no one amongst you offer the leadership to me. I will not take it. The hero who brought us together and made all things ready for our going, it is he and no one else who should be our leader in this voyage." So Heracles said, and the Argonauts all stood up and raised a cry for Jason. Then Jason stepped forward, and he took the hand of each Argonaut in his hand, and he swore that he would lead them with all the mind and all the courage that he possessed. And he prayed the gods that it would be given to him to lead them back safely, with the golden fleece glittering on the mast of the Argo. They drew lots for the benches they would sit at. They took the places that for the length of the voyage they would have on the ship. They made sacrifice to the gods, and they waited for the breeze of the morning that would help them away from Iolcus. And while they waited, Aeson, the father of Jason, sat at his own hearth, bowed and silent in his grief. Alcimede, his wife, sat near him, but she was not silent. She lamented to the women of Iolcus who were gathered around her. I did not go down to the ship," she said, for with my grief I would not be a bird of ill omen for the voyage. By this hearth my son took farewell of me, the only son I ever bore. From the doorway I watched him go down the street of the city, and I heard the people shout as he went amongst them, they glorying in my son's splendid appearance. Ah, that I might live to see his return and to hear the shout that will go up when the people look on Jason again! but I know that my life will not be spared so long. 
I will not look on my son when he comes back from the dangers he will run in the quest of the Golden Fleece." Then the women of Iolcus asked her to tell them of the Golden Fleece, and Alcimide told them of it, and of the sorrows that were upon the race of Aeolus. Cretheus, the father of Aeson, and Peleus was of the race of Aeolus, and of the race of Aeolus too was Athamas, the king who ruled in Thebes at the same time that Cretheus ruled in Iolcus. And the first children of Athamas were Phrixus and Hella. Ah, Phrixus, and ah, Hella, Alcimide lamented, what griefs you have brought on the race of Aeolus, and what griefs you yourselves suffered! The evil that Athamas your father did you lives to be a curse to the line of Aeolus. Athamas was wedded first to Nephele, the mother of Phrixus and Hella, the youth and maiden. But Athamas married again while the mother of these children was still living, and Ino, the new queen, drove Nephele and her children out of the king's palace. And now was Nephele most unhappy. She had to live as a servant, and her children were servants to the servants of the palace. They were clad in rags and had little to eat, and they were beaten often by the servants who wished to win the favour of the new queen. But although they wore rags and had menial tasks to do, Phrixus and Hella looked the children of a queen. The boy was tall, and in his eyes there often came the flash of power, and the girl looked as if she would grow into a lovely maiden. And when Athamas their father would meet them by chance he would sigh, and Queen Ino would know by that sigh that he still had some love for them in his heart. Afterward she would have to use all the power she possessed to win the king back from thinking upon his children. And now Queen Ino had children of her own. She knew that the people reverenced the children of Nephili, and cared nothing for her children. And because she knew this, she feared that when Athamas died, Phrixus and Hella, the children of Nephili, would be brought to rule in Thebes. Then she and her children would be made to change places with them. This made Queen Ino think on ways by which she could make Phrixus and Hella lose their lives. She thought long upon this, and at last a desperate plan came into her mind. When it was winter she went amongst the women of the countryside, and she gave them jewels and clothes for presents. Then she asked them to do secretly an unheard-of thing. She asked the women to roast over their fires the grains that had been left for seed. This the women did. Then spring came on, and the men sowed in the fields the grain that had been roasted over the fires. No shoots grew up as the spring went by. In summer there was no waving greenness in the fields. Autumn came, and there was no grain for the reaping. Then the men, not knowing what had happened, went to King Athamas and told him that there would be famine in the land. The king sent to the temple of Artemis to ask how the people might be saved from the famine. And the guardians of the temple, having taken gold from Queen Ino, told them that there would be worse and worse famine, and that all the people of Thebes would die of hunger, unless the king was willing to make a great sacrifice. When the king asked what sacrifice he should make, he was told by the guardians of the temple that he must sacrifice to the goddess his two children, Phrixus and Hella. Those who were around the king to save themselves from famine after famine clamoured to have the children sacrificed. Athamas, to save his people, consented to the sacrifice. They went toward the king's palace. They found Hella by the bank of the river washing clothes. They took her and bound her. They found Phrixus half-naked digging in a field, and they took him too and bound him. That night they left brother and sister in the same prison. Hella wept over Phrixus, and Phrixus wept to think that he was not able to do anything to save his sister.
the servants of the palace went to Nephili, and they mocked at her, telling her that her children would be sacrificed on the morrow. Nephili nearly went wild in her grief. And then suddenly there came into her mind the thought of a creature that might be a helper to her and to her children. This creature was a ram that had wings and a wonderful fleece of gold. The god of the sea, Poseidon, had sent this wonderful ram to Athamas and Nephili as a marriage gift, and the ram had since been kept in a special fold. To that fold Nephili went. She spent the night beside the ram praying for its help. The morning came, and the children were taken from their prison and dressed in white, and wreaths were put upon their heads to mark them as things for sacrifice. They were led in a procession to the temple of Artemis. Behind that procession King Athamas walked, his head bowed in shame. But Queen Ino's head was not bowed, rather she carried it high, for her thought was all upon triumph. Soon Phrixus and Hella would be dead, and then whatever happened, her own children would reign after Athamas in Thebes. Phrixus and Hella, thinking that they were taking their last look at the sun, went on. And even then Nephili, holding the horns of the golden ram, was making her last prayer. The sun rose, and as it did the ram spread out its great wings and flew through the air. It flew to the temple of Artemis. Down beside the altar came the golden ram, and it stood with its horns threatening those who came. All stopped in surprise. Still the ram stood with threatening head and great golden wings spread out. Then Phrixus ran from those who were holding him, and laid his hands upon the ram. He called to Hella, and she too came to the golden creature. Phrixus mounted on the ram, and he pulled Hella up beside him. Then the golden ram flew upward. Up, up it went, and with the children upon its back it became like a star in the daylit sky. Then Queen Ino, seeing the children saved by the golden ram, shrieked and fled away from that place. Athamas ran after her. As she ran and as he followed, hatred for her grew up within him. Ino ran on and on until she came to the cliffs that rose over the sea. Fearing Athamas, who came behind her, she plunged down. But as she fell, she was changed by Poseidon, the god of the sea. She became a seagull. Athamas, who followed her, was changed also. He became the sea-eagle, that with beak and talons ever ready to strike, flies above the sea. And the golden ram with wings outspread flew on and on. Over the sea it flew while the wind whistled around the children. On and on they went, and the children saw only the blue sea beneath them. Then poor Hella, looking downward, grew dizzy. She fell off the golden ram before her brother could take hold of her. Down she fell, and still the ram flew on and on. She was drowned in that sea. The people afterward named it in memory of her, calling it Hellespont, Hella Sea. On and on the ram flew. Over a wild and barren country it flew toward a river. Upon that river a white city was built. Down the ram flew, and alighting on the ground, stood before the gate of that city. It was the city of Ea, in the land of Colchis. The king was in the street of the city, and he joined with the crowd that gathered around the strange golden creature that had a youth upon its back. The ram folded its wings, and then the youth stood beside it. He spoke to the people, and then the king, Aetes was his name, spoke to him, asking him from what place he had come, and what was the strange creature upon whose back he had flown. To the king and to the people Phrixus told his story, weeping to tell of Hella and her fall. 
Then King Aetes brought him into the city, and he gave him a place in the palace, and for the golden ram he had a special fold made. Soon after the ram died, and then King Aetes took its golden fleece and hung it upon an oak tree that was in a place dedicated to Ares, the god of war. Phrixus wed one of the daughters of the king, and men say that afterward he went back to Thebes, his own land. And as for the golden fleece, it became the greatest of King Aetes' treasures. Well, indeed, does he guard it, and not with armed men only, but with magic powers. Very strong and very cunning is King Aetes, and a terrible task awaits those who would take away from him that fleece of gold. So Alcimede spoke, sorrowfully telling to the women the story of the golden fleece that her son Jason was going in quest of. So she spoke, and the night waned, and the morning of the sailing of the Argo came on. And when the Argonauts beheld the dawn upon the high peaks of Pelion, they arose and poured out wine in offering to Zeus, the highest of the gods. Then Argo herself gave forth a strange cry, for the beam from Dodona that had been formed into her prow had endued her with life. She uttered a strange cry, and as she did, the heroes took their places at the benches one after the other, as had been arranged by lot, and Tiphys, the helmsman, went to the steering-place. To the sound of Orpheus's lyre they smote with oars the rushing sea-water, and the surge broke over the oar-blades. The sails were let out, and the breeze came into them, piping shrilly, and the fishes came darting through the green sea, small and great, and followed them, gambling along the watery paths. And Chiron, the king's centaur, came down from the mountain Pelion, and standing with his feet in the foam cried out, "'Good speed, O Argonauts! Good speed!' and a sorrowless return. THE BEGINNING OF THINGS Orpheus sang to his lyre, Orpheus the minstrel, who knew the ways and the stories of the gods. Out in the open sea on the first morning of the voyage, Orpheus sang to them of the beginning of things. He sang how at first earth and heaven and sea were all mixed and mingled together. There was neither light nor darkness then, but only a dimness. This was chaos and from chaos came forth night and Erebus. From night was born Aether, the upper air, and from night and Erebus wedded there was born day. And out of chaos came earth, and out of earth there came the starry heaven, and from heaven and earth wedded there were born the titan gods and goddesses, Oceanus, Coesus, Creus, Hyperion, Iapetus, Thea, Rhea, Themis, Nemesine, gold-crowned Phoebe, and lovely Tethys. And then heaven and earth had for their child Cronus, the most cunning of all. Cronus wedded Rhea, and from Cronus and Rhea were born the gods, who were different from the Titan gods. But heaven and earth had other children, Cotus, Briarius, and Gyas. These were giants, each with fifty heads and a hundred arms. And heaven grew fearful when he looked on these giant children, and he hid them away in the deep places of the earth. Cronus hated heaven his father. He drove heaven his father and earth his mother far apart. And far apart they stay, for they have never been able to come near each other since. And Cronus married to Rhea had for children Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Aeodinus, and Poseidon. And these all belonged to the company of the deathless gods. Cronus was fearful that one of his sons would treat him as he had treated heaven his father. 
So, when another child was born to him and his wife Rhea, he commanded that the child be given to him, so that he might swallow him. But Rhea wrapped a great stone in swaddling clothes, and gave the stone to Cronus. And Cronus swallowed the stone, thinking to swallow his latest-born child. That child was Zeus. Earth took Zeus, and hid him in a deep cave, and those who minded and nursed the child beat upon drums, so that his cries might not be heard. His nurse was Adrestia. When he was able to play she gave him a ball to play with. All of gold was the ball, with a dark blue spiral around it. When the boy Zeus would play with this ball it would make a track across the sky, flaming like a star. Hyperion the Titan-god wed Thea, the Titan-goddess, and their children were Hellas, the bright sun, and Selene, the clear moon. And Coeus wed Phoebe, and their children were Leto, who was kind to gods and men, and Asteria of happy name, and Hecate, whom Zeus honoured above all. Now the gods who were the children of Cronus and Rhea went up into the mountain Olympus, and there they built their shining palaces. But the Titan gods who were born of heaven and earth went up to the mountain Othrys, and there they had their thrones. Between the Olympians and the Titan gods of Othrys a war began. Neither side might prevail against the other. But now Zeus, grown up to be a youth, thought of how he might help the Olympians to overthrow the Titan gods. He went down into the deep parts of the earth, where the giants Cotus, Briareus, and Gyas had been hidden by their father. Cronus had bound them, weighting them down with chains. But now Zeus loosed them, and the hundred-armed giants in their gratitude gave him the lightning, and showed him how to use the thunderbolt. Zeus would have the giants fight against the Titan gods. But although they had mighty strength, Cotus, Briareus, and Gyas had no fire of courage in their hearts. Zeus thought of a way to give them this courage. He brought the food and drink of the gods to them, ambrosia and nectar, and when they had eaten and drunk their spirits grew within the giants, and they were ready to make war upon the Titan gods. "'Sons of earth and heaven,' said Zeus to the hundred-armed giants, "'a long time now have the dwellers on Olympus been striving with the Titan gods. Do you lend your unconquerable might to the gods, and help them to overthrow the Titans?' Cotus, the eldest of the giants, answered, "'Divine one, through your devising we are come back again from the murky gloom of the mid-earth, and we have escaped from the hard bonds that Cronus laid upon us. Our minds are fixed to aid you in the war against the Titan gods.' So the hundred-armed giants said, and thereupon Zeus went and he gathered around him all who were born of Cronus and Rhea. Cronus himself hid from Zeus. Then the giants, with their fifty heads growing from their shoulders and their hundred hands, went forth against the Titan gods. The boundless sea rang terribly, and the earth crashed loudly. Wide heaven was shaken and groaned, and high Olympus reeled from its foundation. Holding huge rocks in their hands, the giants attacked the Titan gods. Then Zeus entered the war. He hurled the lightning. The bolts flew thick and fast from his strong hand, with thunder and lightning and flame. The earth crashed around in burning, the forests crackled with fire, the oceans seethed, and hot flames wrapped the earth-born titans all around. Three hundred rocks one upon another did Cotus, Briareus, and Gyas hurl upon the titans, and when their ranks were broken the giants seized upon them and held them for Zeus. But some of the titan gods, seeing that strife for them was vain, went over to the side of Zeus. These Zeus became friendly with, but the other titans he bound in chains, and he hurled them down to Tartarus. 
As far as earth is from heaven, so is Tartarus from earth. A brazen anvil falling down from heaven to earth nine days and nine nights would reach the earth upon the tenth day. And again, a brazen anvil falling from earth nine days and nine nights would reach Tartarus upon the tenth night. Around Tartarus runs a fence of bronze, and night spreads in a triple line all about it, as a necklace circles the neck. There Zeus imprisoned the titan gods who had fought against him. They are hidden in the misty gloom, in a dank place, at the ends of the earth. And they may not go out, for Poseidon fixed gates of bronze upon their prison, and a wall runs all round it. There Cotus, Briarius, and Gyas stay, guarding them. And there, too, was the home of night. Night and day meet each other at that place, as they pass a threshold of bronze. They draw near and they greet one another, but the house never holds them both together, for while one is about to go down into the house, the other is leaving through the door. One holds light in her hand, and the other holds in her arms sleep. There the children of dark night have their dwellings, sleep and death his brother. The sun never shines upon these two. Sleep may roam over the wide earth, and come upon the sea, and he is kindly to men. But death is not kindly, and whoever he seizes upon, him he holds fast. There, too, stands the hall of the lord of the underworld, Edeneus, the brother of Zeus. Zeus gave him the underworld to be his dominion when he shared amongst the Olympians the world that Cronus had ruled over. A fearful hound guards the hall of Edeneus. Cerberus he is called. He has three heads. On those who go within that hall Cerberus fawns, but on those who would come out of it he springs and would devour him. Not all the Titans did Zeus send down to Tartarus. Those of them who had wisdom joined him, and by their wisdom Zeus was able to overcome Cronus. Then Cronus went to live with the friendly Titan gods, while Zeus reigned over Olympus, becoming the ruler of gods and men. So Orpheus sang, Orpheus who knew the ways and the histories of the gods. End of section 5